Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 15th, 2020. We are back to record an episode after the Major League Baseball draft, which honestly is enough content for an entire podcast. However, we are going to save that conversation for next week as we learn a little bit more about some of the undrafted players the White Sox sign and learn about the bonuses that Garrett Crochet, the first round pick of the White Sox, and second round pick Jared Kelly, what they will be signing because that will help complete the full picture as far as the strategy the White Sox had towards their 2020 Major League Baseball draft. And you know me, I would love to talk about the Major League Baseball draft, as the previous two episodes in the podcast feed are all about the draft. But this past weekend, there has been more public discussion about Major League Baseball returning in 2020. You have one side, the Players Association, trying to make the case to owners playing at least a half a season to make it worthwhile, but wanting to be paid at a pro rata rate. Owners, well, they don't want that. What they want is to only pay players for 50 games. Players want to play 114 games? Cool, we'll pay you for 50 games. Players want to play 80 games? Cool, we'll pay you for 50 games. You get the idea. Because many of the games will not be attended by fans, the owners are trying to make the case they will not be making as much money as the Players Association thinks they will. In a brash decision over the weekend, the Players Association has decided to seize conversations with the commissioner's office. A statement from the Major League Baseball Players Association Executive Director Tony Clark. Quote, Players want to play. It's who we are and what we do. 
Since March, the association has made it clear that our number one focus is playing the fullest season possible, as soon as possible, as safely as possible. Players agreed to billions in monetary concessions as means to that end, and in the face of repeated media leaks and misdirection, we made additional proposals to inject new revenues into the industry, proposals that would benefit the owners, players, broadcast partners, and fans alike. It's now become apparent that these efforts have fallen upon deaf ears. In recent days, owners have decried the supposed unprofitability of owning a baseball team, and the commissioner has repeatedly threatened to schedule a dramatically shortened season unless players agree to hundreds of millions of dollars in further concessions. Our response has been consistent that such concessions are unwarranted and would be fundamentally unfair to players and that our sport deserves the fullest 2020 season possible. These remain our positions today, particularly in light of new reports regarding Major League Baseball's national television rights, information we requested from the league weeks ago but were never provided. As a result, it unfortunately appears that further dialogue with the league would be futile. It's time to go back to work. Tell us when and tell us where. After the Players Association statement this past weekend, the ball is in Commissioner Rob Manfred's court to decide what the next move is. Will he decide to activate the 50-game season or desperately try to reach out to the Players Association one more time to agree on a longer season with the pro rata mandate? It's easy for us as fans to try and see both ways, but I feel it's important to get the perspective from a player because the decision to come back is just not a financial one. We are still dealing with COVID-19 too, and the players are putting their health at risk. Well, joining us is a very special guest on the Sox Machine podcast. He is a reliever for the Chicago White Sox. It is Evan Marshall. And hello, Evan. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the Sox Machine podcast. Man, I'm happy to get on here and talk baseball anytime. So, Evan... I got a lot of questions. They pretty much boil down to where do we begin with all this? But let's start with an easy one. Uh, how are you and your family since the uh, coronavirus outbreak? Um, everybody's happy, healthy. I mean, we're home, and and uh, you know, I've got a two-year-old little boy and and a wife of six years now, and, and so it's been nice to be home and get to play around the house and and mow my own yard and those types of things. But uh, those are just sort of placeholders for the time we're, we're waiting for baseball. Yeah, and I know most Americans right now are trying to or looking ahead to return back to normal, and hopefully that gets accomplished soon. But back to these conversations between the players and the owners. Evan, from your perspective, why are we not watching you guys play baseball right now? Um, Everybody wants to come out of this a winner, right? Because we're a year away from a CBA negotiation. And uh, it feels like if you let down now, you're you're positioning yourself to be on the losing end of the next talks. And, um, you know, I would love to be playing right now, and so would a lot of my teammates. And it's just an interesting an interesting dilemma because I've never seen the players so unified. So it's not, you know, 10% of the people that are like, hey, we need to hold out and we've got this. You know, it, it's literally 100% of the players involved are just guys we don't want to be taken advantage of and it's our health and we're the ones being put at risk and, and we deserve uh, everything we agreed to in March. And, and 
I don't see us coming on that, you know, at all. And, and so it's really in the commissioner's hands. And um, obviously there's potential legal back backlash, I guess you want to say, if, if they decide that they don't want to play in, and I'm, I'm air quoting in good faith, as many games as possible. Um, because that in good faith term was used a whole lot. And, uh, and I don't know the last time in good faith was really relevant, uh, in a baseball negotiation. So it's just business. Um, we'll find a way through it. It's really in the commissioner's hands and hopefully they just step up and do the right thing. And we all be playing baseball here sometime in July, hopefully. And Evan, that was going to be one of my questions in our conversation about the Players Association being united on this front. Has this been, in your career, the most unified that the Players Association has been? Yeah, I mean, it's this really isn't even a way, an issue to waver upon. I mean, we're we're kind of all one and one for all here on the, and you especially saw that when. Um, the owners leaked the idea about the sliding scale and the 800 million in pay cuts where the cheaper guys would actually make closer to 50%. Um, and the more expensive guys would make down at like 20% of their contracts. I mean, that was sort of an attempt to put, you know, one side of the union against the other. And really it was just a unanimous no, even for the guys that might've come away with that, you know, benefiting. Um, so it's it, there hasn't been a whole lot of instances in, in the past, you know, let's say decade, two decades, where the union has had to come together on an issue quite like this. And it's, um, I don't know, kind of remarkable to see this amount of talent, this group of people that have come together the way they have them. And you could have had guys from the beginning be like, screw it, let's play, or, you know, mm-hmm. let's just get back to baseball and, and that that really is the met the, the the mindset of a lot of people is just get back to baseball however what we do is worth you know our time is worth a, at least a little bit here where we agreed to a prorated pay and that's a heavy pay cut if they decide to make a half season or less and um but we're still all in we at least think that our daily value is what it is and that's what we kind of we're sort of built this ship upon pro rate of pay for the white Sox clubhouse. Who are the players rep? And I guess, how does that messaging work for you guys? As far as this particular clubhouse from what the players association is trying to get as far as information and down to the players themselves. Um, currently our rep is James McCann and he's highly intelligent and he breaks it down for everybody in just the simplest of ways. Um, and Tim Anderson is the alternate, and, and uh, we just had an election, and Lucas Giolito is going to be the next uh, rep for the team. So, you know, he's a face that should be around in that clubhouse for a long time to come. Um, and really what happened, they're in charge of taking our opinions as the players and taking it to a group of 30 teams mm-hmm. and, with you know, call it a special counsel or whatever you want to call it, and – voicing what we individually feel and ending common ground with all the teams and uh, an amicable solution that uh, sort of favors everybody. And so that's kind of what we do. We, 
we talk about it at home. We talk about it with our wives and um, you know, our teammates on the phone, and then we pass it up the ladder. If it's a big enough issue, they pass it up the ladder from now. It finds its way home to the, uh, the special counsel, I guess, and that's how we uh, vote on these big issues. For some fans, Evan, they, they just don't understand or they will never understand the player's perspective. I, I'm sure you've heard it often. You get paid to play a child's game, and this is a debate between millionaires and billionaires, and I don't want to hear about it. Right? This is what we are seeing often, especially on social media. But you personally, you have gone through some adversity during your career. You had a minor league invite last spring training camp that you turned into making the team. And you had a great 2019 season. You had a 1.8 war, a 185 ERA plus, meaning that you were 85% better than league average last year. And White Sox fans, we barely knew who you were last spring training, Evan, when you got to (laughs) camp. And now you're a fixture in the White Sox bullpen. So I know from that talking point for fans, it doesn't pertain to all players. But for you, do you consider yourself part of this millionaires group in this debate? <laughs> yeah, man, I wish. I wish I could qualify for that. But, um, <laughs> you know, this was this was a big year for me. We got to arbitration one. It took me you know, five-something years to get here, and this was a big year, and obviously nobody could predict what happened. This was the first time that my salary was going to be over a million dollars. Not a big deal. And now uh, I'm faced with 30% of that. And so, you know, uh, 65% of the league makes less than a million dollars. So you've got a lot of guys that don't have the kind of funds sitting around their banks like people think they do. Now, obviously – there's a lot of flashy headlines about Garrett Cole and, and, you know, let's say guys on that caliber that have earned the right to make an obscene amount of money, but they've earned that right. And we all know and respect that. Uh, but we're not all on that level and we need these dollars and cents, just like everybody else does. I mean, I've got a mortgage to pay and I understand I'm very privileged with what I get to do for a living. And, and it's a hell of a way to make a living. Um, but in the end, just as much as it is about playing a child's game, I'm taking care of my family and I'm putting food on the table. And, and uh, there's a lot of commonalities between me and, and the average guy. There have been multiple owners who have publicly been stating that Major League Baseball is not as profitable as the public thinks. <laughs> In these conversations... Uh, has the league's office gave any insight to the players association where the owners are financially? Uh, just the opposite, actually. We've requested, requested, and um, that falls on deaf ears. I mean, we're not a revenue-sharing salary cap sport, and the only way that we'll ever get to see the books is if we start to become one. Hmm. Um, just like uh, you know, they all put up the. I don't want to call it an act because uh, no disrespect to the owners. You know, we really don't have a team without them. And I understand that they're all, uh, you know, very powerful businessmen and they got that way for a reason. You know, for example, let's say the Cardinals chairman you know, or, or whatever his position is, uh, DeWitt, he goes on record saying baseball is not a very profitable uh, business. However, the value of that franchise has climbed almost $2 billion since uh, they took ownership. So that's, that's an insane concept to me to, you know, tell the public, 
well, we don't profit year to year, but what you do is you sink millions and millions and millions of dollars back into the team via the stadium or, or perks or something where the overall net value of your, your, your asset that you control is in the billions now. So you really have to go out on a limb to say baseball is not profitable because why, why in the hell would you be in the business if it wasn't? Right. Every, you know, teams just make millions and millions of dollars, and what they do with that is fine, whether it's payroll or profits or they just want to, you know, build a new uh, club suite or something like that. But in the end, the values of the clubs are all over a billion dollars now. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, let's say yesterday, Turner Sports is now paying Major League Baseball a billion dollars to show some Sunday night baseball games and then, of course, the League Championship Series and, and things like that. What a time for a billion-dollar deal to make headlines <laughs> when they can't stomach the fact to pay us our daily value. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but you might, I, I wanted to throw this hypothetical out, kind of a little devil's advocate. Let's say they do open the books. And you find out that 10 teams are terribly ran, way in debt, almost to the point of bankruptcy. And the league has been promoting phony revenue numbers the last couple of years. If the league and the owners were struggling as much as they want to put that image out there financially, uh, would the Players Association, in your opinion, Evan, have a change in heart and move off the pro rata salary to make things work in 2020? Of course. I mean, we're not monsters. We want baseball to be healthy and survive and move forward. But, however, we've been requesting those financial those financial picks uh, at the books, if you will. And um, specifically, we've been requesting what this, you know, the TV deals and things like that. And then it gets leaked that it's a billion dollars. So they will they refuse to give us any glimpse of anything close to a losing number, you know, in the balance sheet. And I get it. Like, we don't revenue share. We don't deserve a look at the books, but we do deserve our salary until you're going to show us otherwise. Right. And there's also the gambling money now, too, that sports betting is, especially in Illinois, it's open, and the casinos have just gotten their licenses. So I'm sure teams will be getting cuts of that. Is that something that's been discussed within the players to try to get a piece of that pie? No, not really. I mean, you know, when it comes to gambling, that's just blacklisted as far as topics in baseball because of baseball and and things that we can't do. Right. Um, However, you know, there's been things like finally adding alcoholic companies, advertisements and and sponsors and things like that, where, you know, we kind of had to agree that that was that used to be an image problem. But we've sort of moved past that. These are American companies and. And, uh, you know, baseball and beer and hot dogs all kind of go together. And so we now there's a significant presence by Anheuser-Busch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the gambling, however, hasn't really made it that far. So we know that they're probably getting a cut, okay. but it just sort of falls into that category of things that they're getting a cut of. And uh, we don't get any of that. You know, I mean, profits in the – Every year, profits get higher and new new revenue, blah, 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 blah. Our salaries are what they are, and that's the way we want it. There's no salary cap. We don't get to see their books. Just pay our salaries, and that is what it is. And then we get to this year where 
they're almost guaranteed to either break even or take a loss. And then for the first time in history, they're asking us to uh, not even asking. They're demanding that we share in the losses. And what would have happened if we had demanded to share in the profits of all the years previous? They would have said, take a hike. You <laughs> could have negotiated that. Right. And, and so, you know, we kind of are where we are. There's a lot of great ownership in baseball. They provide so many things, the travel quality, the lodgings, the food. There's a lot of great things that they do for us. Um, but from our perspective, we are a product. We are what you sell. We are what you make the money off of. So um, personally with the White Sox, Jerry Reinsdorf, we see him. He's not just a, a myth up in the club suite that we never hear about. We see him. I talk to him. He's a great guy. We respect the hell out of him. But the owners come together collectively as a group and then position themselves and let, you know, the commissioner state their positions on things. And um, it's, been, it's been nothing short of foolish from the beginning where they asked us to start taking an $800 million. The, the first offer they made was an $800 million pay cut uh, off of the prorated that we already agreed to. Um, and that's how we got here. They offered us the same deal four different ways where they shifted it from 50, 50% pro rate and 80 games down to, you know, 80% pro rate and 60 games. Like, you know, it's just been a sliding scale, but in the end, the total dollars are the same. And so that's kind of where our statement was yesterday with our, our president, Tony, he's doing a great job. And he said, we've tried to make this work. It is futile to continue and set a schedule date and a length of season. There's kind of an or else in there. You know, uh, if you fail to meet the, the maximum games that you could have afforded to play, then, you know, that's kind of like a we'll see you in court. You know, nobody wants to go that route because right. that would happen while we were in spring training and playing games. If they set a 50-game schedule – that's going to be arbitrated in the background while we're playing. And, and I think the product that you're going to see on the field might suffer because anybody that's on a long-term deal might just say, screw it, I'm going to stay home with my family and keep them safe because there's no benefit for me going and putting myself or them at risk uh, while COVID and, and all the other factors are at play when I can just sacrifice a year of my service time and salary uh, as small as it's going to be and stay home and take care of everybody. And we'll see you next year. I think that you're going to see a lesser product, a, sh a shadow of itself uh, of baseball on the field in 2020. And that's really sad, but that's kind of where they're at. They they've positioned us in a, a way where, you know, some guys, let's say that signed the deal in arbitration one, much mm -hmm. um, like I did, but let's say it was all the way down at like 875. If we only play 30% of a season, they will owe money back to the team to go play for two months. Hmm. They'll have to repay the team out of that 287 that the guaranteed contracts already got. They'll have to pay back money to go play and instead of getting a paycheck every two weeks, they will owe the team. Where's the incentive to even take the field? Right. I mean, 
Yeah, I don't see one. I don't think anyone in any job would pay their employer to work there. Yeah. Uh, that's not working. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just an awkward position because the, the owners fronted us some money to pay our bills and do, all the, uh, do things like that. Um, but like in my own position, my margins for, for if we go play, I'm, I'm going to take a loss to go play over those two months. Now, not a net loss. Like, they already fronted us some money, and that's great. I have it already, and I'm prepared to go earn it. But my patients won't cover agencies, rent, food, et cetera. I will eventually be paying stuff out of my own pocket, not out of my paycheck. Wow. See, that's that's perspective we, we as fans don't have. And I think that adds another layer to this conversation. And, you know, with that conversation, if Rob Manfred on Evan – on Monday or Tuesday, decides, you know what, fine, we're going to play a 50-game season in 2020, and we're going to start on July 1st. What would be your personal reaction to that decision if that is the decision the commissioner's office will make? Um, bittersweet because, wow, we get to play baseball. Let's go. Let's lace them up. I'll see you in Chicago. Let's go Southside because we have an awesome team, and we can't wait to take the field. Mm-hmm. However, that would equivalent, you know, that, excuse me, that, that equals about, you know, a 30% season. And so 30% of all of our pay and 30% of everything, um, like I said, down there, my margins are so thin that I'm probably going to be taking a loss out of my paychecks to go play these two months. Um, if I had to put a guess on, I would bet you the season's going to be, 55, 56, 57 games or so, because if you look at all of their offers that they made us, the total dollars involved equals 57 full games of pay. Hmm. No matter which way they shifted it, it was 57 games worth of pay. And so from a player's perspective, perspective, why would you accept to go play 75 games for 57 games of pay? Right. When in the end, they're going to mandate that we go play 57 games for 57 games of pay. But the way that we had, that we, excuse me, the way that we had pitched it to them was expanded playoffs and all these other things, home run derbies and all these mic'd up players and things that would really enhance the experience for the fans and more teams make the playoffs. That's more money, more TV time, more national TV time. They get to, recoup some of their losses and um the comments we got back was it's simply a non-starter we're not going to play unless you come off of prorated pay and we said this that's where we got to yesterday where it said this is futile we're going nowhere let us know when and where and if you do a poor job then you know that there's a policies in place for that you touched on earlier that right now everyone's trying to win. And because the CBA is expiring after next year, that's something that we've been talking about on this show for a while, Evan, that the conversations were going to get ugly regardless. And then 2020 happened. Do you foresee these tenuous conversations right now between the players and the commissioner's office? Is this going to carry over to the 2021, to the next CBA and where this is just going to continue to be the shadow over the league, not just for 2020, but also for the 2021 season. Without a doubt, 
There's no way that you can envision walking up to a table and sitting down to, go to negotiate and not have the bad blood that's in the water from this carry over. Especially, you know, yesterday, now, now we're sending sharply worded letters back and forth about how it's their fault or it's our fault or we didn't negotiate in good faith or they didn't. That, to me, is somebody that's preparing for a grievance. You're already building your defense. And, and, and that's going to carry over to 2021. There's a lot of things about the system that work great, and there's a lot of things about the system that are designed to harm the player. And, and we've, it's been a long time since we had a work stoppage, uh, but this might as well be the next work stoppage because you look at TV. I watched golf today. There could have, that could have been baseball. We could have been out there just, you know, getting outs or, you know, hammering, uh, hammering homers or something. And instead, I'm, I'm currently sitting in Kansas, and we don't have any any inclination of a season start or a spring date. I mean, I miss my teammates, man. We got a great group of guys, and we stay in contact. But that's really all we do is stay in contact. It's not like I'm going out and working on sinkers with bummer or working on cutters with fire or anything where it's actually productive. I'm here working my butt off, staying ready just in case. But, man, who knows when that's going to be. We just had the Major League Baseball draft, and it was only five rounds. And now you have the undrafted players signing $20,000 bonuses. Is there a sense that the Players Association, and this is also in light that some minor league teams are going to get cut after the agreement between minor league baseball and major league baseball expires this year. Um, is there a sense Evan, that the players association will try and protect those players and future union members in the next CBA? God, other than the fans, if you want to look at people that really got the shaft in this whole deal, it's the minor leaguers. I mean, you have guys get cut and sent home with no insurance benefits or, you know, guys that are making $400 a week. And, and that's, out of graciousness of the owners to send them $400 a week. Um, but really, you know, they don't have a union and they all strive to be part of the baseball players association. And we want them here. That's the next group of guys, but it's, it's hard to negotiate on their behalf because they work for, for the most part, what, what equates to under minimum wage. And the owners have had it that way for so long that, they may not even listen to that conversation in the slightest. And if they do, it's going to be something that we concede to, not them. So then putting the financials to the side for a moment, from a health perspective, we are starting to see some COVID-19 cases begin to rise in parts of the country again. Are you concerned about your personal well-being returning to play games? Yeah, I mean, with the recent spikes, it's hard not to be. And I think at all points, there's a lot of people – you know, that say instead of making pro-rated pay, we should be making that plus hazard pay because we're going out there and putting ourselves at risk. Um, That's a good point. Here recently, with the spikes around the country, that point has really been emphasized because we are going to hit the field. And, you know, there's not going to be fans in the stands, but we are going to be exposed, whether it's in Chicago or in Kansas City or Minnesota or Detroit, we are exposed to the public one way or another, and that's unavoidable. And then back to the 56-game season and 
It's 30% of the season. But let's say, hypothetically, Evan, the White Sox win the American League Central. And the team goes on and wins the World Series. Evan Marshall wins the American League Scion Award. Will those accomplishments feel legitimate to you despite the reduction in games played? I mean, if, if the commissioner's office isn't going to slap an asterisk on, on the Astros or anybody like that, our, our World Series title's got to be more legit than theirs. So I'm going to be just as proud as I'm sure they are of their title, if not more, because I know the honest work that went into it and what I, uh, what I earned as a result of the hard work. And, and, and my teammates and I would get to celebrate as World Series, World Series champions. I mean, I, 2020 is one of those things. It might be worth more than a normal season because of all of the different uh, – so let's call it the weirdness of 2020 that you're going to have to overcome to win a World Series title. That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. You know, it, it has been just an absolute crazy year. And and the funny thing is, Evan, in an alternate universe, the Chicago White Sox having not having to deal with coronavirus, you guys were scheduled to play in Houston this weekend. You would be wrapping up your your series in Houston, which then the conversation would be totally different of, do you feel okay playing in Houston? Do you feel like they're still cheating and painting garbage cans while you're on the mound? Uh, yeah, that... In another reality, that is the conversation that we would be having, Evan, after the White Sox play at the Houston Astros. I don't know. I guess from a player's perspective, do you ever trust those teams again? Uh, no, not ever. And that black eye that the Houston Astros gave Major League Baseball and our reputation may never go away. And the dirtiest feeling that we've had in the sport, um, really to go back decades and, and – they did it to themselves, and I understand there's a lot of quality talent there and a lot of pitching that would have been un- unaffected by uh, any of the schemes that they had going on. However, they cheated worse than any team's ever been proven to be cheated, and uh, they got to keep that title. And that, that was um, just the dirtiest feeling we've ever had in the sport. You can go back to all the different different problems in baseball it's called a steroid era and blah 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 what the houston astros did and were proved to have done was the worst so you got the money issue you got the health and you don't know if you can trust teams if they're cheating or not this is a there's a lot going on in the league right now, but I, I highly recommend following Evan on Twitter. He's at emarsh31. And uh, Evan, we are greatly appreciated that you took the time to join our show. We hope that you and your family continue to stay safe. Happy early Father's Day to you as Father's Day is next weekend. And we look, we really, really look forward to watching you again pitch for the White Sox. And, and hopefully that season does start soon, uh, no matter how many games are played this year. Oh, I'm really happy you guys have me on. I mean, the White Sox is such a great team. It's such a storied uh, organization. And like I mentioned earlier, our ownership, Jerry Reinsdorf, he does a tremendous job with our team. And and, and the things that he provides for us are amazing. And we can't, I, I can't wait to see him personally because I think, he's, you know, he does such a great job with us. It's hard not to be thankful and show that to him. But um, he's kind of grouped in with uh, some other owners right now and, and um, that seems to be the uh, roadblock here is really just the impasse between prorated salary and, and what the owners are willing to do. And 
and uh, I don't know. Hopefully, one day soon uh, we'll be back on the diamond, and and you get to see a quality product out of the White Sox. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm now joined on the Sox Machine podcast with the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Uh, very special treat to have someone like Evan Marshall join the show to be a guest. And it was incredible insight that he provided from his perspective as far as being an active player going through these negotiations between the Players Association and the league itself and still being in limbo on when this season is going to start. Uh, what are some thoughts that you had on what Evan Marshall had to say? Well, I think it was valuable to hear from him because, you know, a, a, a large, I would say a bulk of major league players are not set for life. You know, they're not uh, multimillionaires. They're just kind of grinding by trying to get a big break, trying to get at least one big uh, payday before, you know, having to consider other options. Like uh, there was a 538 article that Travis Sajic wrote that uh, used Rob Scahill, former White Sox reliever Rob Scahill, just kind of uh, in the same position as Marshall. Um, going around from team to team, uh, you know, getting some traction, but still having to find another job after baseball, making what he can, and then uh, preparing for a life after his career. And, and Marshall's in the same position, and a lot of guys are that way, especially as the league gets younger and uh, front offices uh, kind of veer away from proven veterans and, and roll more with uh, unproven talent that the uh, you know service time, you know, fewer players have a chance to accrue the kind of service time that leads to that set for life money. So, I think he's valuable to hear from there. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, you know, if he's any indication, uh, he talked about how unified the players were and how everybody's on board. And, you know, when you basically all you had to do is, you know, ask him a question. It was kind of like pulling a string on his back and he would just, you know, go one to two minutes of really strong, uh, you know, substantial answers. And, uh, if he's saying that, and he's not a player rep, he's somebody who hears from it from James McCann, and he was as he was saying, uh, if he's that invested, if he knows the deal, if he's you know that's locked in, then I imagine that's gonna be somewhat reflective at least. You know, maybe he's more engaged than other people, but I think that reflects at least somewhat how engaged the average major league player is, and just how uh, unified they are in fighting this battle against the league. And that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up, Jim, because for those that are listening right now and after listening to Evan Marshall, thinking that, man, just get on with the 2020 season. We, we know that it's going to be an odd year. It's going to be a shortened season. Let's try to get back to normal in 2021. I don't think 2021 is going to be normal either, Jim. Like this, 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 this problem right now between the Players Association and the owners – it's just going to carry over through the offseason and into 2021. 
as soon as they come to their differences, the CBA, maybe then it ends. But it doesn't sound like the CBA negotiations are going to be anything uh, like a smooth road between the two parties. And it could lead to a labor stoppage, whether we missed the final part of 2021 or it impacts the 2022 season and the 2022 season starts delayed until both sides can come to an agreement on a new collective bargain agreement that would last four years. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. And, uh, you know, when he mentioned that, you know, you, you have the uh, you, you mentioned the 2121 talks and he said, yeah, it's going to when you come to the table for that, you're going to have two bloody parties who are uh, trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not going to pretend uh, that whatever uh, wounds they suffered from the last go around don't exist anymore. And, you know, having him refer to those as two separate things, my hope, um, I didn't put a lot of hope in it, but I just kind of hope that maybe, you know, something this severe will force the league and players to you know, address two things at once and try to address the big picture. But I think you know, the, the problem with that is that neither side wants to negotiate while it's at a adva- uh, disadvantage. Like I'm thinking like with players, you know, if you think of the analogy, like uh, Joe Creedy did not want to sign an extension with the White Sox while he had his first back problem, because that would have been negotiating at a disadvantage. And I think with neither the players nor the league knowing exactly what the immediate post pandemic future looks like, uh, they don't, you know, neither of them want to, uh, you know, negotiate or deal from a, from a weakened position, even if they're both weakened and, uh, none of them feel that great for it. So I imagine that's a big part of it, but yeah, it's, it's going to be, you know, not good. And, uh, it seems like the league, uh, really, uh, maybe it's because they've been used to getting what they want from the union over the years or being able to fracture them, uh, over various things like say the international draft. That was a case where the, uh, the union you know, had a uh, a late fracture from international players who did not agree to that and they had to uh uh you know end up with a international pool system that was not you know maybe an international draft would have been better than the pool system at the end uh when, when you look at it but you know that's how the league got an advantage there and same thing with uh drug testing uh yeah there's a very passionate a part of the union membership that does that wants a game as clean as possible. And that's a way they've been able to press that uh, advantage. Maybe the league is so used to that. Just, you know, uh, if they squeeze hard, squeeze hard, squeeze hard, eventually they'll fracture. And, and this is the one case. And maybe that's where major league baseball benefited from, uh, uh, shoring up its legal ranks. So, you know, getting Bruce Meyer in to handle it and, and being more of a hardline negotiator that maybe uh, the league is not quite the push or the union is not quite the pushover that it was. And the league is just really slow to realize that. But if they don't realize it by now, I don't know how that's going to be better by the time the next negotiations roll around. The 2021 winter meetings are set to be held in Nashville. I would not make any plans right now, Jim. (laughs) Even though it's going to be in your backyard. I've got a feeling. Well, I've got a feeling that the 2020 winter meetings in Dallas are going to be canceled. I've got a feeling the 2021 winter meetings in Nashville, you still may have like the big trade show for minor league baseball and you may have the job fair for minor league baseball. But I'm right now penciling into the calendar that both the players association and the owners are going to have very difficult conversations between the two parties to try to hash out as far as a new CBA. And I do think that's going to impact the start of the 2022 season. 
And again, this is a lot about way of saying that based on the conversation with Evan Marshall, and he's just one player, but if the union is 100% united on this front, that the conversations that are happening today that fans are very frustrated with, and there are fans that are frustrated with both parties, this is not going to go away. So you better strap yourself in and hunker down because uh, I think we're <laughs> going to be hearing about this for the next 18 months, Jim. Yeah, sit back, do the opposite of relax and hunker down. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the the winter meetings, and, and that's the other thing I was thinking is just that, you know, the next hot stove season is probably going to be miserable. You know, I don't see how Without that's going to be fun. And, and I can, you know, there's a reason for that. You know, I generally side with, uh, you know, labor i think that's fair to say but when it comes to the you know next hot stove season and trying to sign players i can see that being a mess and i can see that being fair uh, you know uh, you know a, a fair challenge of both sides trying to figure out what real value is going to be for like the next 18 months of the baseball calendar you know given that we don't know what the fan situation is going to be like the revenue situation uh there's you know reason to say like that you know the, the owners may not want to go all in on you know uh or you know i would say maybe some owners will be ready for it because they can absorb a lot but you know i would say more than half the league you know and, and not collusion just more than half the league is just so uncertain of exactly what they're revenue streams are like and what they can actually afford in terms of payroll that it's going to be really sluggish and then that's going to make people unhappy fans and players and media and just yeah they're going to see the 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 griping tumble into the winter and then they're going to come in the spring and you're going to have uh the unsatisfying previous season and then the uh whatever remnants of the pandemic are and how that affects how the season operates and then you have the cba (laughs) expiration at the end of it uh, I picked a great time to go full-time into writing about baseball, didn't I? Oh, Jim. Oh, Jim. Support us at patreon.com slash socks machine. Well. That's what it feels like. The, you may <laughs> feel like some of the draftees that were just selected this past week. Segway. Uh, in the Major League Baseball draft. Yeah, what a time to be selected and have your dreams come true. Being drafted by a Major League Baseball team and stepping right into this mess and nobody having an answer or a clear answer on when you're going to start your professional career. It's like the uh, it's like the Donald Glover Jeff with uh, him coming with the pizza boxes to the apartment <laughs> yeah. that's on fire. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites. It really is. They've got the pizza. They're very happy. And it's nothing but chaos. But let's quickly talk about the Major League Baseball draft. I recorded two podcasts. Regarding as far as my reaction to the White Sox selection. So how about you, Jim? After what happened on Wednesday and Thursday this past week, what do you think about the White Sox picks? I think signing or or drafting Jared Kelly in the second round made me feel about picking Garrett Crochet in the first. I think I was a little bit underwhelmed by Crochet independently. Um, just because of the short track record of the, um, you know, whether he can withstand the rigors of a full season at the kind of effectiveness, effectiveness he was showing early on, the White Sox really haven't had a whole lot of luck with, you know, quote unquote, safe picks, just being able to get them next step or prevent them from blowing out when they throw that hard. And, you know, with Michael Kopech not being able to show he was back from Tommy John surgery all the way, he's not quite a uh, positive point uh, in that column yet. So I was a bit underwhelmed, but you know, when you have Jared Kelly come in as the second round pick and he's going to, you know, uh, pretty much assuredly signed for over slot, um, 
at least you have some balance there. You have some left-right balance. You have um, trying to get some help that's close to the big leagues and requires less hands-on development versus a guy who can uh, provide some longer-term pitching depth and can absorb maybe a step back or two just because uh, high school players have the, uh, the benefit of time. So I, I like that uh, uh, the way they complement each other in, in terms of how they fill the White Sox uh, depth charts uh, you know, down the line. And then I like the uh, pick of Bailey Horn in the fifth round. I thought that was just a you know, when you, when you, you likened him to Connor Pilkington and I can see that. And, you know, Pilkington was a third round pick. You know, just kind of shrug it. And for the fifth round, uh, under, you know, you know, behind two pretty exciting signings, uh, especially in tandem. I, I like Horn as a third piece as well. Yeah. The White Sox are going to get more out of Horn than they're going to get out of their third and fourth round picks. I mean, Cade McCall's out of, uh, Grand Canyon university, he pitched well for them, but just terrible luck, needing Tommy John surgery, and he got it in May. So he's not going to be back until mid-2021. And John Cooper of Baseball America, I thought, made a really good point. And this also pertains to the undrafted signees that are that are happening already on the first day that the market's open uh, and for the upcoming weeks. We may see players that are going to be drafted or signed in this draft class that may never play a game. Mm -hmm. And I think Kate McCall's may be a candidate for that, depending on where he is health wise and how many minor league affiliates the Chicago White Sox have. And if they have a roster spot for him and then Addison coffee as well, the third round pick, which I understand that he's got a commitment to Louisville that the White Sox probably bought out for him. Uh, but he may have some talent that's intriguing, but the dude did not play for his junior college team. He threw mm-hmm. three innings, and he was not very good in those three innings. Uh, and then he only appeared in eight games of the, like half the games offensively that the team played. Like if you look at the roster, he would not even come close to the top five guys. You would even think about giving a $10,000 bonus to as an underslot deal. Uh, so I think for those two picks, we may look back them in history and be like, well, Addison coffee didn't turn out to be anything. Uh, it's one of those. We're gonna have to put a bookmark in a gym and say, okay, it was a very unique situation, and they just took someone that was willing to take $10,000 so they could use the bonus lot money to pay for Jared Kelly in the second round. This draft is about two players, Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly, and I'm optimistic it will pan out. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm still being firm with my profile on Garrett Crochet. I think his future role with the White Sox is going to be out of the bullpen to be that Andrew Miller and Josh Hader type. And as we've seen in the postseason, those guys are, you definitely want somebody like that in your bullpen, just in case if a starter gets rocked early in a game. And if the White Sox are going to be contenders, Jim, if this is their contention window, they're going to need a Garrett Crochet out of that bullpen. Yeah, it's not bad. I just hesitate for, um, you know, I, I, can see that it's just you know i thought carson fulmer could be a good multi-inning reliever when the white Sox drafted him right. and stuff took a big step back you know the fastball lost a couple ticks from what you thought he might be able to play up in relief and the curveball wasn't that powerful and 
just backed up on him. And Zach Birdie, he was good initially, although he didn't pitch on back-to-back days. And a couple times he did, it didn't go well. And then, you know, he had Tommy John surgery and his stuff is backed up since. So it's hard for me to get, uh, you know, I guess as excited as I would have been a few years ago, just seeing some safe players just not really not be all, all that low risk. But, uh, you know, the, the other hand, you know, when, when trying to think of who I would have liked to see the White Sox draft, you know, like Tyler Soderstrom or Ed Howard, like the White Sox don't have a great track record of developing those guys either. So it's, uh, you know, it's just been bad news kind of in the first round lately for the Sox. So uh, that, that was my one thing when I, when I thought about crochet, like who would I rather see the Sox draft and just, yeah, it, it's all kind of equal. They just, uh, a, a few different types of players who just haven't quite panned out the way the Sox thought they would. And we did get a question from one of our Patreon supporters, Matthew. And Matthew is asking, do you think the White Sox would have been better off, both talent and top 100 prospect-wise, if they went with Mick Abel instead of Garrett Crochet with the first pick and still drafted Jared Kelly at pick 47, or is drafting two high school right-handed starting pitchers too much inherent risk for a team to take despite the talent considering the failure rate of that type of prospect? And Matthew, I think that's a really good question because from what I understand, Jim, after the draft days, that that was the conversation of the White Sox draft room at pick 11. It was between Garrett Crochet and Mick Abel. And it seemed that the room was pretty split based on the rumors I'm hearing and that the final vote was up to Mike Shirley, and Shirley picked Garrett Crochet, and that's the end of the story. And then after day one, when they noticed that Jared Kelly wasn't selected, Jared Kelly told the media that, uh, Mike Shirley told the media that they worked out the details with Jared Kelly's representation, and that's why Jared Kelly got to pick 47. That wasn't the White Sox game plan going into the evening, but circumstances changed, and Good for the White Sox to make that change as well, make that adjustment and work something out to get a top 25 talent in this draft class and Jared Kelly in the second round. But if we look at this draft class four years from now, I think the conversation is going to be, man, should have they taken Mick Abel instead of Garrett Crochet, Jim? And that's something that I've also bookmarked after draft day. And I guess I'd like to get your thoughts would have been would it, would it have been too much of a risk for the White Sox to take two high school pitchers in the first and second round? Yeah, I think having just read Keith Law's book and him devoting a chapter or chapter and a half to talking about just the failure rates of high school pitchers in the first round, especially righties, that it's just, uh, yeah, I think it's hard enough to convince yourself of one, but two would just be feeling like you're just uh, a huge risk of throwing the draft away. And I think especially last year, with the White Sox selecting two right-handed pitchers, uh, Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist, and trying to you know, uh, work them up. I think Abel and uh, Kelly are you know, head and shoulders above Thompson and Dahlquist, but just in terms of like the big picture and the, uh, the kind of depth the White Sox are trying to shove up the ladder uh, in a way that uh, helps now and later, I think, uh, you know, if they did go with two high school righties, after you know going with two high school righties the year before you just have a lot of guys who haven't been able to develop yet especially depending on how the low minors work and how that uh you know how you know whether the short seasons are there or whether complex ball and what complex ball rosters look like that could be a mess so i think it does make sense to spread the risk a little bit to the college ranks and the uh, guys who can help quicker guys who can start the season in a ball uh, without question 
and uh, get them on that uh, track. Uh, I, I think that makes more sense this time. You know, maybe another year where you definitely have either, you know, maybe a few years ago when you had great falls in the AZL White Sox and were able to, you know, gracefully move them up to a ball uh, on a nice schedule. Or if it's a couple years later where we know exactly how the teams go about filling their lowest levels of the minors and, and how they make that jump from uh, the AZL to a ball, then I would feel maybe a bit better about uh, putting that much hope on high school righties. But for the time being, I think uh, you don't want to put all your eggs in that basket. And in the second round, if you did decide to go with Mick Abel, like I spoke with James Fox, in the second round, you're probably going college starter to try to get something out of this draft class that you can count on, quote-unquote count on, because we know that there's really no no such thing as a safe draft pick. Uh, we should learn that by now with the White Sox being very heavy college uh, during the knock, uh, Nick Hostetler tenure and not seeing a lot of progress with, quote-unquote, high-floor draft picks. Uh, that haven't panned out or probably will not pan out for the White Sox. So, But it is an excellent question, Matthew, definitely something to think about. And there was a follow-up question. What do we know about Mike Shirley's department that we didn't know a week ago? How might we use this year's draft to guess what kind of players the White Sox will sign as undrafted free agents? Do you have any insight on this, Jim? Well, I think uh, basically the what my biggest takeaway from the draft and how it reflected on Shirley is that he's pretty straightforward because he said uh, the White Sox are placing a big emphasis on pitching, and sure enough, he goes five for five, and you know, maybe you can even discount third and fourth rounds because uh, just arms are arms, and uh, you know what the hell take a flyer, but uh, still, you know, just meeting that and, and and having some compelling prep talent to pick from on the position side and still just avoiding that and going, you know, five for five in pitchers. Uh, it seems like, you know, he, he, he met expectations or set expectations for himself and lived up to them. So that's what we know so far. Um, the, you know, going with Kelly in the second round, I think was a nice departure and, and his excitement and willingness to go that way. And, and, and being able to get it done, I think that's an encouraging sign. Just, uh, <laughs> I think at this point, it's uh, more a matter of, it's in development hands and trying to actually get these pitchers to take a step forward rather than, uh, you know, backing. And it's not the case with all White Sox pitchers. Like Jonathan Stever is a guy whose stuff has played up since the White Sox drafted him. And uh, same thing with Jimmy Lambert. He was finding another level, um, but it just happens to be that the, uh, the pitchers the White Sox have expected things from um, have been lucky to hold their, you know, hold their line, you know, coming into the system. And some guys have not even been able to hold that. So that's what I think the big mystery is. But, you know, if you try to just assess surely for what he's responsible for, um, you know, he's doing what he can to give the White Sox farm development staff stuff. Hopefully that development department has games <laughs> to have their players <laughs> develop. And uh, we'll see which affiliates that they will have. Uh, to have these new players that Mike Shirley has found for them and where they're going to start playing. I, I, I'm still, I still don't know. Like it's still a continuation of what the White Sox did with Nick Costler's final year. So I, it's almost like this draft class is just kind of grading the entire White Sox front office as a whole. Cause they just continue the 2019 strategy to 2020, which I'm in favor for. 
uh, go ahead and try to add as many top 50 prospects as you possibly can, even though you kind of have to work the system to get enough bonus money to sign these kids. Uh, But I'm in favor of this rather than try to just find the best talent available in each round, because I think that is ultimately where you get a lot of college players. And that strategy hasn't really worked out for the White Sox uh, all that well. I mean, even look at San Diego. I can't believe Colin Wilcox, Jim, who if he went back to school, everyone was talking about after day one that, okay, well, if he goes back to Georgia, he's going to be a top 10 preseason pick for the 2021 draft. And San Diego selects him in the third round, and they're going to give him first-round money. That's where the baseball draft doesn't make sense. If you cover the drafts like the NBA or the NFL or the NHL, this is where baseball just doesn't make sense on how you can have first-round talent drop to the third round, have a team take them, and then just shock the league by figuring out the bonus money and getting a deal done. And everyone's going to ask themselves, man, how come Colin Wilcox didn't get selected in the, uh, the first round? And again, we're going to have to remember that it was just a nice ploy by the San Diego Padres to get a first-round talent and shock everyone by drafting him in the third round and finding a way to get $3 million to sign him. So it, it was a, it was impressive to see the White Sox be part of that. It was impressive to see what the Padres were doing. And we'll see on how the draft's going to work out in the next couple of years. And uh, we'll see who the White Sox sign as far as undrafted free agents. There have been some teams that are very busy out of the gates. I think the Chicago Cubs have already signed four or five players already. Uh, and the White Sox haven't signed anyone. But give it time. They'll definitely sign some players in the undrafted free agent market. And I think that we may give us a little bit more inside gem on the types of players Mike Shirley likes to target. If the White Sox don't sign anyone, when we talk next week, Jim, that will raise a different set of questions from me uh, on how the White Sox handle this upcoming draft. But so far, so good in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's, this is going to be, it's just weird. We don't have a precedent for this. I was thinking just, you know, how weird the, 2020 MLB draft page is going to look on baseball reference for people trying to look it up 20 years from now and might not have uh, known exactly what happened when they're looking at previous draft picks. It kind of reminds me of, you know, going back and looking at multiple back when major league baseball had multiple drafts in a year and trying to figure out why that happened and how that came to be and uh, what, you know, how that made sense at the time and why they abandoned it. It just, it's going to look weird. And I, I think there are going to be a lot of teams that just don't get anything from the draft. And a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, as you mentioned, careers that never actually end up starting because there are no games for them to find when rosters are finally reestablished in a more condensed minor league. And it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. And uh, it's, it's kind of uh, just tough when it comes to how we appreciate baseball. I think there's, you know, a, a tendency for baseball fans and fans of any with anything really to like what came before and, and like how a sport was, like how a show was, like what a band did before, you know, made this album and then it was different. But in this case, you know, it just results in less baseball, uh, less baseball across levels, less fewer cities and towns with a team. And I think that's what makes it hard to... Uh, shake like this isn't a change for the better it's a change for the worst in big picture you just hope that 
the change for the worst doesn't affect you or your team personally. Yeah, I was wrong, by the way. The Chicago Cubs have now signed eight players on the first day that teams can sign undrafted free agents. Eight. Very, very busy, the Chicago Cubs. San Diego's already signed six. Uh, so St. Louis has already signed five and the, the White Sox are one of the few teams that have yet to sign an undrafted free agent. But like I said, there's still time and we'll get a better idea of who the White Sox sign. And maybe they'll give us some additional insight on the types of players that Mike Shirley likes to target. But again, if they use the same strategy in 2021, I don't think it's necessarily a Mike Shirley strategy rather than the White Sox strategy. Take the best college player available in the first round and let's take a risk and go over slot in rounds two and or three. And I don't mind that idea because, as I mentioned in a previous podcast with James Fox, the White Sox strategy in the second and third round hasn't bear any fruit. And it's time to try something else because they've been too dependent on their first round picks to develop. They haven't been developing and that's causing some issues as far as depth in the contention window for the White Sox. They've gotten a lot more out of their trades than they have done by the draft. And hopefully that doesn't bite the White Sox in the upcoming years. But that will do it as far as our draft recap. Again, we'll probably continue the draft conversation next week as we hope to have Jim Callis from MLB.com, our good friend of the show, to visit and give his thoughts as far as how the draft went and how the White Sox did. And maybe we'll get some more insight on who the White Sox signed during the undrafted free agent period. But you guys also had some additional questions for us. So after the break, we'll answer those in P.O. Sox. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When you rely on the internet for everything... You need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine or helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Machine. And Jim, our questions come from our Patreon supporters. So as guys, as always, thank you so much for your support. And if you would like to support Socks Machine, you can go to SocksMachine.com. You can go to Patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, our first question that we have comes from Michael. And Michael's asking, do you think that Major League Baseball or another top baseball league could function without franchise owners? If so... How do you think that could work? 
Well, it's hard to create a top baseball league that isn't Major League Baseball just because of the antitrust exemption that the Major League Baseball enjoys. And got another question from, or it was kind of a half question, half statement from uh, Doug Wirtz, who also you mentioned that the commissioner doesn't really act in the best interest of baseball or the best interest of baseball fans. And the fans don't really have a seat at the table when the game is for them. And doesn't that seem like it, uh, you know, is not in the spirit of why the why baseball enjoys an antitrust exemption, and that's uh, that's a very good question, and it's been an active question for years. Baseball enjoys the antitrust exemption, while other sports don't, and it was just like a Supreme Court ruling by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who just kind of randomly said that uh, teams don't engage in interstate commerce, and they've made a few challenges since, and they've been able to whittle away some of the protection, but. For some reason, baseball still enjoys it. And well, I guess the some reason now is that uh, they have a healthy lobbying arm that uh, allows the league to uh, enjoy its protections. But for the time being, you know, as long as that's the case, it's hard for a top league to ever, you know, come along and challenge Major League Baseball on that scale. I mean, there are independent leagues around baseball, but they just don't say like, you know, they don't, they're not going to fund like an XFL type uprising where they say we're going to pay players, uh, you know, a, a, good living wage to play in major cities and we're going to support it we're going to find our own broadcast deals and and see if you can do it uh yeah that's a case where baseball would be able to probably squeeze them out and so that's why it's hard to imagine another top league but i think you know if you were to try to somehow make it less reliant on owners and and, and make it more public-minded i think you would have to go with a you know kind of civic owned baseball team with an appointed front office because uh, you can't imagine like players being able to own it I don't think they their career length is good or if they're you know it's a case where you have stable enough um, you know stable enough rosters to where the competition would be all that great because you didn't want to have teams trying to improve and cut players and sign players and trade for players and that would be, uh, you know, not quite feasible. You could have a thing where maybe the league owns all the teams. And so it's, a, you know, more of a matter of just uh, just a very, um, you know, top, top level um, ownership structure to where the, you know, the teams are more or less equal and they just have to be dispersed different cities. And, uh, you know, it's really not run out of cities, but it seems like a civic way would be the only feasible way to do it but i just you know when you think of how much money is in the game and how much money is spent and how teams and cities are kind of going away against the um you know the 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 publicly funded stadiums and how that's those stadium deals are harder to strike now that uh cities and elect uh you know the citizens know a little bit more about uh, just how bad of a deal those things are that uh, trying to run a you know major league baseball team on the scale it's run in the amount of money it takes and how much money it spends and how much money it earns seems like that wouldn't be the maybe the most efficient use of city resources especially in a lot of places so uh, i have a hard time seeing how you get away from the franchise uh typical franchise owner model unless somehow baseball loses that antitrust exemption well michael thank you so much for your question our next question comes from mark hope and mark is asking is there a point where labor labor relations become so toxic that the non-superstar tier of players begins to view KBO or the NPB, the Japanese league as a viable option in mass. 
Well, I think it depends on on what you mean by en masse. I think like if it's, you know, as many players as possible, there's a, a strict limit on how many foreign players an NPB team and a KBO team can have. In Japan, it's four. In Korea, South Korea, it's three. So uh, there's a reason why more stateside players can't go overseas to, you know, make a full paycheck and come back when the league is ready. Uh, so there's that. Now, if you're talking about like the just like the second tier level of players or third tier level of players, rather than the guys who, you know, couldn't stick in the majors, you know, guys who could have long major league careers but will go over to the KBO for a spell. I could see that being maybe possible, but you know, when you look at how much money is in the game now from the major leagues, I think it's a bit different. We saw this in 1994 and uh, 1995 uh, with the White Sox when uh, Darren Jackson and Julio Franco both went to uh, Japan. And in, in that case, like Darren Jackson got more money from Japan than the White Sox were willing to pay him stateside. In Julio Franco's case, it was similar. Uh, he was a bit older and also he was going to hook up again with Bobby Valentine, who was his manager in Texas. And Valentine was at that point a, a very successful manager in Japan. So it was a good fit for him. And he had a couple of good years. And I think DJ enjoyed his experience as well. Um, yet for that tier of players, like the second tier, well compensated in their day, but not making top dollar. I think uh, overseas was more equal in terms of pay. But now I think the second tier and third tier for Major League Baseball pays considerably more than what those teams are willing to pay for foreign players to come uh, overseas. So I think it's a bit harder of a sell. And also I think, you know, there's a, a certain player who is either, you know, open-minded enough to succeed there or desperate enough to where it's the only uh, only chance they have to succeed in baseball and, and get back at stateside. I'm thinking of like a guy like Phil Humber, uh, Phil Humber, who went overseas uh, to KBO and he just, uh, he didn't pitch well. He had a miserable time personally. He said like, well, at least the checks cashed, but he just did not have fun. He, he wasn't comfortable. He didn't succeed. And, uh, you know, it, one probably fed into the other. It's probably cyclical where he just didn't really want to be there in the first place or wasn't his you know, first choice. And uh, the, the performance feeded the misery. And he just had to uh, count down the days until he was cut. And I think that's kind of a, a big problem for major league players along the way is just that they have to embrace the opportunity. And I think a lot of them who are just going over for a paycheck or, might think it's just the best thing they can do at this time to kind of uh, while away the days. Probably won't be uh, that successful, and I don't think it's that's the kind of player those leagues are necessarily looking for. I am interested to see, while we have this undrafted free agent period, if those two leagues, the Korean or Japanese league, is able to convince some of these high school kids to sign with them. Like a Carter Stewart? Like a Carter Stewart. Just because if you didn't get drafted, because let's say if your number was $500,000 and you didn't get that from a major league team and you're not willing to sign for that for 20 k if any of these teams in the Korean or Japanese league approach these high schoolers and they're willing to pay that, I'm interested to see what how many decisions we get of some of the top high school talent foregoing the college route and then going into the KBO and in the uh, Nippon League. Because if you go play overseas, Jim, how long do you have to wait to become a free agent and sign back with a major league team? I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's like six years or something like that. Okay, so you'd be, you're at 18, 
you'd be 24. Yeah, can, I think that's it's something like that. I have to, to refresh my memory, but it's it's something along those lines, I believe. If you're willing to take on the adventure, and if you're good, you got a chance to make a lot more money than having to deal with the minor leagues. A lot more money. So I, if I was a scout for the KBO or the Nippon League in Japan, this is something I would be really interested in. And trying to pursue some of the top 18 and 19 year olds. It's kind of like the NBA now having the G League and now allowing teams to pay these top high school basketball players 500000 to a million dollars. Because if you're going to get that type of cash, these high schoolers are going to forego the one and done for college and they're going to go straight to the G League. And that's going to help the G League as far as talent wise and more and more people will watch that. People are watching the KBO on ESPN. So the KBO could start plucking these high schoolers away from the top colleges and giving them $250,000, $500,000. I think it will greatly enhance their league. While the college baseball front will be missing on a talent, but it, it requires an 18-year-old, Jim, to be comfortable living overseas in either South Korea or Japan. And that is a, that is a big jump. Uh, as far as culture is concerned. But, hey, again, you make a lot more money doing that than uh, either going through the college route or uh, having to go through the minor league route. So Yeah, uh, Stewart signed a six-year, $7 million contract. So I think that's six years is why that sticks out to me. Got it. Okay. And, well, he's going to make $7 million over the next six years. Okay? He's not making that if he got drafted and he signed with a team in the major leagues, he's not going to come close to that. And if he's good and he performs well, he's going to be a 24 year old free agent. And there's a, I can't, I have to imagine there'll be many major league baseball teams lining up to sign him. So I think Carter Stewart could be a very good example on another way for high school talent to get paid and play professional baseball, and still find a way to reach the major leagues. It's unorthodox, but you can make a lot more money doing it. And it's, I think it'd be cool if he did. I think it'd be a little bit bad for minor league baseball, but I think just having as many possible avenues for you know minor league players to get paid and succeed would, I think, be probably more of a benefit than, a, uh, you know, than something that detracts from the product. Again, terrific question, Mark. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question comes from Will. And Will is asking, Jim, I'm thrilled that Ed Howard gets to stay with a Chicago organization. Just a really cool story that doesn't seem to happen that often, especially with non-Southern, Southwestern high schoolers. If he becomes a top prospect or an everyday player or even a star for the Cubs, will the White Sox skipping him in the draft be viewed unfavorably? I think uh, it depends on what Garrett Crochet and or Jared Kelly do. Um, unfortunately, the, the the two close examples I can think of this are where the White Sox, you know, were kicking themselves for somebody they, you know, should have had or could have had. I'm thinking like Fernando Tatis. That's the obvious one of somebody who they lost who became a star, or at least you know, he's on the the verge of stardom. He's got the name recognition already, but 
hasn't quite put together for, for a full season. And then you have Mike Trout when the White Sox drafted Jared Mitchell. And in uh, both cases, you know, Jared Mitchell and James Shields are mentioned uh, with a lot of uh, displeasure <laughs> and disgust. And so I think if uh, Garrett Crochet flames out and Ed Howard becomes a star, I think uh, we're well accustomed to what that looks like. We don't know quite what that looks like, say, if, you know, I, I think with um, with the Tatis trade, I think uh, the comparison that comes to mind for me is if the White Sox got like an Edwin Jackson type um, where from James Shields, where he wasn't enough to make a difference. He was good. He was a credible mid-rotation major league pitcher who helped the White Sox win some starts and, and improve them, but didn't improve them enough for it to make a difference. How would the White Sox have? How would White Sox fans respond to losing Tatis for that? I think it would have been a bit different. I think it still would have been a major thorn in their side, and the Padres would still be rubbing it in. But I think you could at least make the baseball argument that the White Sox did improve the short-term product was enough. But you understand the thought process. Getting a washed-up James Shields, I think, uh, makes that harder to swing. And the same thing with uh, you know with Mike Trout. You know, if Jared Mitchell got to the majors, if he had like a Gordon Beckham type career where it was disappointing but not quite a bust and Trout was great, I think you can at least point to where the White Sox found a major league player. Uh, they just, uh, you know, pick the wrong one. And that's a case where, you know, they would have been able to accept that a little bit easier. But since Mitchell flamed out pretty much immediately, or at least after his injury and the White Sox pushed him after an injury, uh, it just uh, was a, a spectacular success. Uh, enjoyed by another team while the team we follow <laughs> had a spectacular failure. So that makes it a bit tough. But I think, you know, if Crochet gets the majors, if he contributes to the White Sox at an average or better level where while Howard is a star for the Cubs, I think it's unfortunate, but at least the White Sox will have something to show for it. And I think that's really what they need to get to ensure themselves from like a, a fan revolt. Ed Howard still has a long way to go. And I think by the time that Ed Howard does join the Cubs, 2024, 2025, that team is going to look much different than it looks today. Like, I don't foresee Chris Bryant being with the Cubs. I don't see Anthony Rizzo being on the Cubs. After this whole ordeal with the Ricketts family crying poor, I don't even see Javier Baez being on the Chicago Cubs. Ed Howard might be ushering in a new era of Chicago Cubs baseball, and the White Sox should still be in their contention window. So even if Ed Howard does join the Cubs and he sets the world on fire, I am doubtful that the Cubs are still going to be a good team in 2024 when Ed Howard does arrive to the major leagues. And while it will sting if he does perform well and Garrett Crochet is not performing well, Jim, uh, then I can understand some White Sox fans being very upset. They were pretty upset on draft day uh, that the White Sox bypassed Ed Howard. It is something that we've touched on, though, many times. If they did take Ed Howard, I still feel like that would have been a smart pick just because of the lack of middle infield depth in the farm system. And at some point, this organization's going to need to address. Yeah, I, I think uh, I was rooting for him to go to like Philadelphia or Texas, or just some kind of team that uh, was not directly across town and who, you know, it's not even necessarily uh, for me, the Cubs getting them, the Cubs enjoying them, but just the. Seeing the same story written over and over and over again, uh, that would get tiresome to me. Like just the coverage and, you know, like the media loves playing up the Cubs-Sox rivalry. Of course, it makes a lot of sense, but it's just something I've never really enjoyed. So 
That's basically the worst thing about following Chicago baseball, uh, exacerbated many times over for me. So that's just, I think, maybe my personal tastes uh, dictating what I'm saying here. And let's face it, last time the Cubs had a really talented middle infielder, they traded him to New York for Araldus Chapman. And now Glaber Torres is going to tear it up for the New York Yankees. And the last time the Cubs had a talented outfielder, they trade him to the White Sox for <laughs> Jose Quintana. Still love you, Jose Quintana, but Aloy Jimenez is going to be a big boost for the White Sox these upcoming years. So there you go. If you are sad that the Cubs drafted Ed Howard, just remember the White Sox have Aloy Jimenez, and hopefully that point makes you feel a lot better. See, I'm still being positive, Jim. It's mid-June. I'm still living up to my New Year's resolution of trying to be more positive, even though 2020 is a dumpster fire. <laughs> yeah, just like it, just when sounding positive is enough to be delusional. <laughs> I often feel delusional. Often. Uh, so, Will, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine and also help support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Huge thanks to White Sox reliever Evan Marshall for joining the show to provide his excellent insights on what a what the players are going through right now in 2020. And hopefully we see him in a White Sox uniform and on the mound pitching for the White Sox very soon. I have a feeling, Jim, in the next 24 to 48 hours, uh, we may have a lot of news to report at SoxMachine.com as far as what the commissioner, Rob Manfred, decides to go on. Uh, but I really did enjoy the fact that he took the time to speak with us, and I thought he provided excellent insight. Oh, he certainly did. Uh, so I want to thank him. I also want to thank you for your excellent draft coverage. Uh, every year, basically, uh, you're on this way before I am, way before I even start thinking about it. So by the time I'm turning my attention to it, you've already done a lot. You, I read what you write. I read what you tweet. I, re- I look at the videos you record and, and put together. And it's always uh, immensely valuable to my uh, crash course in in learning about the draft and learning about the, the options and forming an opinion and i imagine a lot of readers and listeners are the same way so if i'm uh being a vehicle for them i just want to say thank you and uh really enjoy it awesome i appreciate that i would not expect the same level of work for 2021 because i don't know (laughs) if there's going to be showcases (laughs) this summer uh, I, I really don't know. I, I've looked around and a lot of them have been canceled in June and July already. Not a shocker. Yeah, I know. I know Cooperstown has really been dealing with uh, a big drop in just travel ball. Yeah. You Cause know, a lot of the Cooperstown yeah. industry is hall of fame related. And also they have a major uh, amateur baseball complex there that they get a lot of travel ball teams going to. And I know that calendar has been wiped out. So that uh, whole industry has really been devastated. And if things change, if something's within driving distance, I will definitely go as I, one thing, you know, back to the question about Mike Shirley, the next high school showcase I'm at, I got to get film on on everyone because even if it is a first round high schooler, it doesn't mean that the White Sox won't pull the strings and try to land that player as at the Under Armour showcase, 
back-to-back years, they've drafted someone, Matthew Thompson uh, in 2019 and Jared Kelly uh, in 2020. So that is something that I have learned. And at the Under Armour Showcase, get a better video camera with more memory. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> we'll have more videos and we'll have more pictures uh, for these prospects, especially in the high school front. Uh, so we have a better understanding of who they are just in case of the White Sox do draft them in 2021. And if we have college baseball return back to normal, uh, Jim, you can have the number one and the number two pick in the 2021 draft in your backyard. So I really look forward to the 2021 Major League Baseball draft coverage I'm going to force you to do. <laughs> you tell me uh, <laughs> when to go and who to point the camera at. Excellent. I love this. <laughs> Role reversal. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> but no, I'm glad that everyone enjoyed it. And uh, there'll be another post as far as players to pay attention to for the 2021 Major League Baseball draft that I'm working on that hopefully will be on SoxMachine.com soon. Uh, but again, that will do it for this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast in a number of ways. Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.